Please bow your heads and let's pray as we approach God's word. Father, it is our desire to draw near to you now in reverent fear. We recognize as we've sung this morning that you are a God of wrath and a God of grace. And these twin truths are intertwined throughout the pages of Scripture. Lord, we come to your word this morning wanting to see you, wanting to know you, wanting to understand who you are with a desire to behold your glory. Lord, we're so thankful that there's something about you that can be known just from our own conscience and our own heart. We know that there's a God. We have a sense of what is right and what is wrong. You've gifted that to each and every one of us. We can look around creation and see your glory. We see it in the sunset and in the, the galaxies in the sky, in the blades of grass. We see it in creation. It declares to us your glory. But Lord, you've given us something even better than the inward witness of our conscience and the external testimony of creation. You've given us your word, and it is in your word that we come to know you as you truly are. The God of wrath, who judges sin, but a God of grace who delights to show mercy and redeem sinners. So Lord, speak to us as we look in your word and help us to see you as you truly are, as you have revealed yourself to be. I pray for your help in this. And I pray that as we see who you are, as we draw near in reverent fear, that we would behold your son and recognize the glory of Christ and our need for him. So Lord, lift up the name of Jesus this morning in our midst. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Please open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Exodus chapter 34. We return to our study through Exodus. We are almost done. It has been probably a year and a half in Exodus, and we are nearing the end. And there have been several high points throughout the book of Exodus. And even if you haven't been part of um, our study on Sunday mornings, if you've read the book of Exodus or if you're a little bit familiar with it, you probably know about some of these. We all know about the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 where God speaks to Moses and reveals to Moses his name, Yahweh, the Lord. We know about the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and how Israel celebrated on the far shores as they watched the the bodies and the chariots of the Egyptian army floating to the surface. We saw several weeks back in Exodus chapter 24 how the covenant was ratified And Moses and the elders went up on the mountain and they ate and they drank and they beheld God. It was this climactic moment. But chapter 34 is arguably the most significant instance of God's glory being displayed that we've seen yet. The highest point to date in the book of Exodus. Just to remind you of where we are, Israel had sinned grievously. They'd built an idol, a golden calf, and they'd worshipped it. They'd broken their covenant with God. This was nothing short of rebellion, and it resulted not only in in God's severe discipline on them, but it also resulted in God withdrawing from his people. He could no longer be among them. And this, as we saw last week, was a major crisis. It's called, in the early verses of chapter 33, a disastrous word. And if God's purposes for Israel are to continue then this covenant that's been broken, this distance between them and God, it had to be rectified. The covenant needed to be renewed. And that is exactly what Moses was after. We saw last week that Moses petitioned God. He asked for God to show grace to him, that God would be with him. 
and grace to the rebellious people he was leading, that he would be with them. And then he asks God this very bold and and almost surprising question. He asks God to give an assurance of his presence with Moses and the people. He asks God to confirm his promise to them by revealing himself to Moses in a personal way. He says, show me your glory. It's chapter 33, verse 18. Please, Moses says, show me your glory. And friends, this pleased God. This is what God wanted as well. God wanted to be reconciled with his people. He desires to be known. He desires to be worshipped. His whole reason for bringing them out of Egypt was so that they would be his people and so that he could be their God, so that they could worship him and serve him. So he agrees to Moses' request. He says, yes, Moses, I will be with you. Yes, Moses, I will be with the people. And yes, Moses, I will show you my glory. God agrees to give Moses a faith-building, fear-dispelling sign that he was indeed with them and that he would be. That their sin would not ultimately derail his covenant plans. This extended yes to Moses' request at the end of chapter 33, I want to read it once again in verse 19. God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand Until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This indicates to Moses that despite their sin, despite the golden calf, despite their failures, God would show Moses his glory. He would confirm his servant. He would restore his covenant with Israel. And that's what happens in chapter 34. And what becomes clear in this text that we'll look at today in the events that unfold is that the God of the covenant is a God of glorious grace. He is a God of glorious grace. And this glorious grace is revealed in three ways in chapter 34. Number one, God's glorious grace is displayed, first of all, in his self-revelation. His grace is displayed in his self-revelation. Look in verse 1 through 4. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. We'll stop right there. There's several similarities here to what we saw back in chapter 19, back when the covenant was first formed with the Israelites. That covenant had been formed, and then it had been broken. So they really need to go back to square one, don't they? And just like before, Moses was to come up on the mountain. Just like before, nobody else was to approach or touch the mountain because of God's holiness. And just like before, they needed to get the law written on stone tablets. Moses had broken the first ones. 
Not because he lost his temper, but because in grief, he was prophetically showing the people, in essence, what they had done by their sin, breaking the covenant. And just like before, Moses will be up there for 40 days and 40 nights. We see that in verse 28 of this chapter. But before they get to work on recreating the tablets and before the terms of the covenant are rehearsed, God does for Moses what he had promised. In verses 5 through 7, he shows him his glory. And this is the crescendo. This is the high point. This is what Moses had asked for. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, Moses has seen God's glory before to a degree, Remember, he had seen the burning bush. Moses had seen, along with all of Israel, the pillar of cloud and fire that had led them through the wilderness to Mount Sinai. Moses had been on Mount Sinai. He had seen the glory of God there. Moses has been in the tent of meeting and had met with God. Chapter 33 tells us face-to-face, as it were, up close and personal. But all of those experiences had been limited. God had never fully revealed his glory to any man. In fact, for a mortal man to look squarely at the fullness of the divine presence with no filter, no protective limitations, as we saw in verse 20 of chapter 33, that would be fatal. He would not survive. But God does reveal himself here to Moses in a greater way than he ever has before. Verse 5 gives us this incredible play-by-play that the Lord descended and stood with him there And proclaimed. He proclaimed. Maybe that's not the verb that you were expecting. This is fascinating, and I think it's instructive that Moses wants to see something, doesn't he? He says, Show me your glory. And God wants him to hear something. God proclaims. But this is indeed an answer to Moses' request, and it's not a no. He's not saying, no, I won't show you my glory. Instead, I'm going to proclaim my name. No, this is a yes. This glory is recorded for us, not in terms of what Moses saw, but in terms of what Moses heard. I mean, look at it here. We're not given a picture or description of what it looked like. We're given words. Words. You see, words tell us more than what can be known simply by seeing. These words reveal more than raw and powerful visual beauty. These words reveal God's true nature and character, and that is his glory. First, he begins by declaring his name, the Lord, the Lord. This is an announcement of God's personal name. It's not a title. It's not a description. It is who he is. This is the name Yahweh. The name that was first spoken from the burning bush on the same mountain years before this. The name means I am who I am. The God who is, who exists in and of himself. 
He is eternal and unchanging, infinite, self-existent. And for Moses to grasp the glory of God, what that means is that he needs to know more than just what God is like. He needs to know who God is. And so God proclaims his name. And he says it twice. And you say, why is that? Is this just for emphasis? Well, surely it is that. But I think there's also something more. There's a ceremonial purpose here in saying his name twice. Remember, Moses is asking for God to reinstate this covenant with Israel. And so this is a covenantal action. God is drawing near to Moses to repair what has been broken. So he's making here a formal announcement. This announcement of himself, his name, comes with this official description. God wants Moses to know his name, that it is the Lord who will enter into covenant with his people. But he also wants Moses to know what this name signifies. So he begins to describe his character his nature, his divine attributes. We see this in verses six and seven. He proclaims his name, the Lord, the Lord. And he says, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is who God is, merciful and gracious. Mercy has to, the idea here of his compassion that he is willing to spare sinners the punishment that they deserve because of their rebellion. That he is gracious refers to his willing provision of undeserved blessing. They need something only God can give them. And he's the kind of God who likes to give those things. This mercy and grace is explained. It is seen in his patience that he is slow to anger. It's seen in his steadfast love and his faithfulness that he keeps his promises and he never gives up on his people. And this love extends to thousands. It is limitless. It is timeless. And as God announces himself and declares that he is here and that this is his name, in the next breath he says, and this is who I am, merciful and gracious. This mercy and grace moves him to forgive. There are three references here to human rebellion. Iniquity. That refers to their wickedness, the the moral depravity of what they had done. Transgression, that refers to how they have violated God's law, broken his commandment. And then finally, the word sin. Any and every thought, desire, and action that contradicts the will of God and displeases him. These are the things that God forgives. He's the kind of God who pardons. And we've seen this proven already, haven't we, in the book of Exodus We saw it at the Red Sea. They they got there to the Red Sea, and when they saw the armies of Egypt thundering behind them, they were afraid. They wanted to go back. They didn't trust Moses, and they didn't trust God. And God was gracious with them. He delivered them anyway. We saw this in the wilderness. As they are hungry and they are thirsty, they grumble and they complain. They, They want to go back to Egypt, and yet God provides for them bread from heaven and water from the rock. And now we see it at Mount Sinai. God gives them his Ten Commandments and says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Do not make any false gods. Do not create any graven images to try to capture my likeness. But that's exactly what they did. And yet, here we are. God is drawing near, declaring his mercy and his grace. This is who God is. 
When Moses says, show me your glory, God says, I am merciful and gracious. Know this. Know this about me. But there's more. God is not only merciful and gracious. The second half of verse 7 also tells us that he is perfectly just. It says, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Lest his mercy cause us to somehow doubt his righteous hatred for sin. And lest the people underestimate his wrath or presume upon his grace, he gives this sobering reminder, do not forget his justice. Do not forget his justice. To visit iniquity, this phrase that God uses, means to bring about the right and necessary consequences for sin. It means that people will reap what they have sown. It means that God will do what is right in terms of judgment. Now, this can refer to direct divine judgment, something that God does throughout the pages of Scripture, directly acting to judge sin. Or it can refer to how God providentially brings about natural consequences to bear. But God says that this is also who he is. He's a righteous judge who deals with sin. Why does he say that he visits iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This could be confusing. Does this mean that God punishes innocent children for sins that their parents committed? Well, no. We saw earlier in Exodus chapter 20. God says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. This is in the middle of the Ten Commandments, referring to the prohibition of idolatry. And he gives the reason, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is clarified by this statement that this punishment, this judgment is specifically upon those who reject the covenant. It is specifically upon those who refuse to repent, those who do not love God, those who do not seek his mercy those who pursue instead their sin. This is clarified as well in Deuteronomy 24, 16, where God says, fathers shall, not put, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Likewise, Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, tells us the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So while children may, sadly, suffer the natural consequences of their parents' sin, as many in this room can sadly attest to, we've seen what that looks like. Children will not be punished by God for sins they have not committed. So if that's not what this means, then what does it mean? Well, rather, I think this statement is meant to remind us. It's, again, it's the flip side of the coin to what was said in the first half of the statement, that God's steadfast love continues from generation to generation. And likewise, just as God abounds in steadfast love, and he is faithful to love and forgive, so also he is steadfast in his judgment. God never grows lax on sin. God doesn't get soft over time. 
God doesn't change his standards. And as long as people continue to rebel, he will continue to judge. And if the children participate in the sins of their fathers, they too will be judged. And their children after them, and their children after them. Because because God will not compromise his justice. This is who God is. He is merciful and gracious, yet he is also faithful to judge sin. He loves sinners, but he will not tolerate wickedness. And you cannot separate God's name. You cannot separate who he is from these essential characteristics. I mean, think about this. Of all the things God could have said, he could have announced his sovereignty. He could have announced his power. He could have announced his his eternality. But he says this. He says that I am gracious and merciful, but do not presume upon my mercy. Do not underestimate my perfect justice. If you don't know this about God, then you don't know who God is. What is Moses' response to all of this? Well, it's the same that ours should be. Look at verse 8. Then Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. He worshiped. And I love how it says that he did this quickly. He does this immediately. Moses wants to make sure that we know that this experience of seeing God's glory, the radiance of his holiness, and hearing these words, it brought him to his knees. It put him on his face. Perhaps these are familiar truths for you. Maybe you've heard them before, that yes, God is merciful and gracious. I mean, yeah, he forgives sin. It's kind of his job, right? It's what he's supposed to do. And yeah, I know he punishes sin as well. I don't like to think about that, but I realize that's true. But we can become so familiar with those truths. It doesn't cause us to fear and to worship as it should. But Moses quickly bows his head and worships. This is no purely intellectual experience for Moses. You see, when you gain a sense of the majesty and the glory of God, when you gain a sense of who he really is, it brings you low, it humbles you to the ground, it calls for immediate worship. And so that's what Moses does. Looking back at verse 5, the Lord descended. He stood there and he proclaimed And what is it that Moses heard? What Moses heard was that the Lord, the God of the covenant, was a God of both mercy and justice. And to know God means we must know this about him and we must believe it. Many people struggle to believe that God really is merciful. Sure, he can forgive the smaller sins, but not the big ones. Maybe he can forgive other people, but you don't know what I've done. We struggle to believe that God really is gracious, that he loves perfectly and steadfastly, that he's not like that father who was quick to anger. He's not like that parent who abandoned you. He's not like that spouse who rejected you. He's not like that friend who betrayed you. His love is steadfast. Others struggle to believe that God is really just, that his wrath is real, that hell is real, that it is eternal, and that people are there now and will go there if they reject Christ. People struggle to conceive of a God who would punish people for their sin. 
We struggle to believe both of these truths. We either doubt God's mercy or we take it for granted and struggle to recognize his justice. But neither of these are right. We must affirm both that the Lord is merciful and gracious and that he is also perfectly just. Friends, this text calls for faith. God's glorious grace is being displayed here in his self-revelation. He's revealing himself to us so that we can know what he's really like. He doesn't leave it up to us to guess or to speculate. These are God's words from God's mouth. This text calls us to believe. God's glorious grace is displayed in his self-revelation here at Sinai. But this grace is also displayed in his son. This proclamation of God's nature in the exodus, that he is merciful and gracious, but also perfectly just, it finds its echo in the cross of Christ. When Jesus descends, he came here to earth. And he stood before us. In fact, he stood before God in our place as he hung on the cross. And there, he demonstrated both the mercy and the justice of God. The cross is a display of this same glory. On the cross, the mercy and grace of God is displayed as he shows that he is a God who desires to forgive sinners, a God who pardons transgression, a God who provides atonement, but also a God who judges sin, who never compromises his justice who must condemn and punish wickedness. It's in Christ as he hangs on the cross that we see both of these truths brought to bear. In the proclamation of the gospel, we are hearing something. We're hearing not just what God has done. We're not just hearing a story about what Jesus did. In the proclamation of the gospel, the good news that Jesus died and rose again for sinners, we are learning who God is. This is his revelation of himself. He's a God of wrath who pours out his righteous judgment, but he is also a God of unfathomable mercy who pardons and forgives and keeps steadfast love to thousands. I hope you understand today that forgiveness of sin is your greatest need. And I want you to hear from this text that forgiveness of sin is also something that God is eager to, to, to give. He's eager to provide it delights him to pardon transgression. There is no hesitancy or reluctance in God's love for sinners. This is his nature. He's merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. I think sometimes we get the wrong idea that, that Jesus somehow died to convince a frowning father to forgive us. That he had to talk his father into it. That's not the case at all. Jesus Christ came as the expression of the Father's love to fulfill the Father's plan, to secure forgiveness according to the Father's will. In Christ, the justice of God is satisfied and his grace and mercy are unleashed to all who would believe. And this flows from the very heart of God. He is merciful and gracious but also perfectly just. And when we see this, when we hear the words spoken at Sinai, and as we see this truth fleshed out in the person of his son, we, like Moses, ought to quickly bow and believe and worship. God's glorious grace is displayed in his self-revelation. But secondly, God's glorious grace is also displayed in the restoration 
of the covenant. This takes us into verse 9 through 28. Moses asks a question. After he quickly bows and worships, he says in verse 9, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. He says, God, if this is who you are, and I believe it, then do it. Do it. Do it for us. Since God has drawn near and proclaimed to Moses these truths, Moses is emboldened to make this formal request. He says, go in the midst of us, pardon our sin, and take us for your inheritance. These three things that Moses asks for are nothing less than covenant blessings. For God to be with them, to forgive their sin, and to take them to himself, he's asking for the covenant to be reinstated. And God answers in verse 10. And he said, behold, I am making a covenant. I am making a covenant. He says, yes. God's glorious grace is displayed in the restoration of the covenant. He will reinstate this covenant that they broke. And what that means is that there will be obligations on God's part and obligations on the part of the nation. Look at God's promise in verse 10. He says, I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. God announces what he will do in these verses. He says, I will do these great marvels like nobody's ever seen. To a people who had beheld the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea, this was the best news. It meant that the God who had been with them in the Exodus would be with them in the conquest of Canaan. And all of his power and glory would be seen. Everyone will see this awesome thing. He's going to do things like part the Jordan River for them. He's going to do things like flatten the walls of Jericho. He's going to do things like make the sun stand still in the sky. And he's going to drive out their enemies and give them the land. This is what God will do. He says, I'm making this covenant with you, and here's my part. Here's what I will do for you. But Israel also has an obligation. Verses 12 through 26 describe their part. First of all, they must reject false worship, the very thing that had already tripped them up. If we could sort of summarize verses 12 through 17, that's what God is telling them. Verse 12 tells us, because of their covenant with God, they must make no covenants with the inhabitants of the land. It would be a snare to them. It would trip them up. Verse 13 tells us that they are to eradicate idol worship. Look at the three verbs that he uses there. Tear down their altars, break their pillars, cut down their asherim. Because God is jealous for his glory. He will not tolerate rivals. They're supposed to refuse to participate in pagan feasts. They are to refuse to intermarry with the Canaanites. We see this in verses 15 and 16. Not for the sake of racial or ethnic purity. That's not God's concern. This is already a mixed multitude. The concern is for the sake of religious purity. They must reject false worship. Verse 17 tells us, No gods of cast metal. Don't make any more golden calves. He's taking them back, but they must promise to never again do what they did at Mount Sinai. God says, we're making this covenant anew. Here's what I will do, but here's what you must do. And not only are they to reject false worship, they're also to uphold true worship. 
Don't worship false gods. Faithfully worship me. Verses 18 and 22 tells us they're to keep the feasts that God appoints. 19 and 20 tells us they're to dedicate the firstborn, both of man and of beast, to the Lord. Verse 21 tells us they're to keep the Sabbath, the sign of this covenant. Verses 23 and 24 tells us they're to faithfully appear before the Lord three times each year to worship him. And verses 25 and 26 tell us this worship is to be pure and distinct, different from the way the Canaanites worship. No pagan practices. It is to be holy. This is their part. They must reject false worship and faithfully offer to God the true, pure worship that he desires. These are their covenant obligations. Verses 27 through 28 tells us that the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Moses writes down all the covenant obligations, and God writes down on these new tablets the Ten Commandments, which was the foundational covenant code. Now, rehearsing all of these covenant obligations, we sort of flew through them and summarized them. That may feel a little bit tedious to you. I don't know if your eyes glazed over a little bit. If you said, J.D., you spent like a month and a half teaching through all of those laws already the first time. Are we really going to get into it again? But I want you to think about this. It may seem tedious to you, but to Moses, receiving these words was like breathing in pure life. Did you notice that? He neither ate nor drank for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses was sustained by the word of God. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This word was precious to Moses because it was God's word and because it was the foundation for their relationship with him. This is what established their covenant with God. This is grace. This is grace. A covenant that had been shattered by their sin was being repaired by God and established according to his word. Moses has asked God to forgive them and go among them and to take them as his own, and God does. And this is always the great need of sinful people. Our sin separates us from God, and what we need is to be reconciled to God. And again, this is what Jesus died to accomplish. In Colossians chapter 1.21, Paul writes, To you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is why Jesus died, to repair and restore the relationship that has been destroyed by sin. And this is why the gospel must be preached. In 2 Corinthians 5.19, Paul writes that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. There goes God being gracious and merciful, delighting to forgive. He does it through his son. Paul continues that this God has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 
in the preaching of the gospel, in, when, when someone shares the gospel with a friend, when a parent teaches the gospel to their child, when a pastor stands in the pulpit and declares the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ to redeem sinners, we are imploring you and urging you to be reconciled to God. If you are in your sins today, separated from God, hostile in mind, alienated from him, then what you need is to be reconciled with God and only Christ can accomplish that. It requires his death. And if you come in faith to receive what Christ provides, if you trust in his finished work on the cross, then scripture promises that you will have peace with God. We receive this peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is all God's glorious grace. He is a God who reconciles sinners to himself. This grace is seen in the Exodus as God restores the people to the covenant. And it's also seen in Christ as he reconciles us to God through his death on the cross. So God's glorious grace is displayed in his self-revelation. It's displayed in the restoration of the covenant. And finally, God's glorious grace is also displayed in the confirmation of his servant. Look in verse 29 through 35. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the elders of the congregation returned to him. And Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Beholding God's self-revelation, seeing his glory, hearing these words, having this experience, it had a profound effect on Moses. Three times we're told that this whole experience made Moses' face to shine. Now, you might, again, you might ask the question, why? Why did Moses' face shine this time when it had never shown before, when he had seen the glory of God before? Well, once again, we have to remember this time was different. He had seen more of God's glory than ever before. And Moses, as the text tells us, didn't realize how this affected him. But others certainly did. They noticed and they were afraid. In fact, they ran. Eventually, they came back and they worked things out. Why were they afraid? I think they realized that, that Moses could enter into God's presence. He was God's mediator, but they could not. For them to be near to God was dangerous. And perhaps even for them to be near to Moses was dangerous. They had spurned his leadership. They had, they had forgotten about Moses and given up on him when he was up on the mountain the first time. But Moses, having drawn near to God, now draws near to the people. He puts a veil over his face for their sake. But then he takes it off anytime he meets with God. So we can maybe think about, you know, the natural cause and effect. Being in the presence of God made Moses' face shine. 
But obviously, this is something God caused, something God intended. What did God intend to accomplish by causing Moses' face to shine in this way? What did it signify? Well, a couple things. First of all, it confirmed that Yahweh, the Lord, the true God, is the only one worth worshiping. Think about that. Whoever Moses is talking to must be the true God. No false pagan priest has ever had his face shine. No idol worshiper who bows down to something made of gold or silver has ever had his face shine. Truly the Lord is God and there is no other. It confirmed that Yahweh was the only one worth worshiping, confirmed what the law had already told them. Secondly, it confirmed that God's presence was indeed back among them. It showed the people that the covenant had been renewed, that God was near. Now they're ready to move forward, to put the failure of Sinai behind them and become the holy and distinct nation that God intended them to be, destined to worship him in the promised land. This was grace. This was confirmation to show the people that God was answering Moses' prayers. Third, it confirmed to the people that Moses was indeed God's man. They had doubted him. They'd given up on him. But Moses is clearly the one they should listen to. He is clearly the one to lead them. He is their mediator. And they were dependent on him. Dependent on him to know God's word. Dependent on him to, to speak to God on their behalf. Likewise, our relationship to God is dependent on our mediator. These people looked to Moses as God's man, the appointed one. He was their only hope, the only one who had access to God's presence. But we look to our mediator, Jesus Christ, in whom God's glory is revealed and upon whom rests our hope of salvation. When the children of Israel looked at Moses, they saw the glory of God. When we look to Christ, we see the glory of God revealed. John chapter 1 tells us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John writes, We have seen His glory, full of grace and truth. It's a glorious grace that is revealed in Jesus Christ. We look to His work on the cross and see God's mercy and justice. And we look to Christ as our mediator, And we don't have to use a veil. And as we look to Jesus, we are changed. God's glory is revealed in his son, Jesus Christ, who is the perfect image of the unseen God. And Jesus makes a new covenant for us as our mediator. And it's in his face that we behold the glory of our God. And when we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ, rather than become afraid and run away like Israel did when they saw Moses, we are changed. 2 Corinthians 3.18, the Apostle Paul comments that we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You see, as Moses beheld the glory of God, it changed him. He reflected that glory to the nation Israel. As we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ, it changes us. And we begin to reflect that glory, to reflect his character, to reflect his image in clearer and clearer ways to the world around us. The God of the covenant is a God of glorious grace. A God who has revealed himself to us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. A God who has reconciled us to himself by forming this new covenant through his blood. 
And this Jesus is our mediator, the one through whom we relate to God, the one in whose face we are invited to see the radiance of the glory of the Father. God has told us who he is, recording these words on the pages of Exodus and by sending his son, Jesus. What is our response? We should be on our face. We should quickly bow. We should worship. We should take God at his word that he truly is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Believe that, rest in it, rejoice in it. But we must also take him seriously to recognize his justice, his holiness, his wrath. And as we see these twin truths and we begin to feel the tension that we are those who are guilty, we must look to Christ and see how both of these truths are brought into perfect harmony as he dies for sinners like us and rises again. Do you know him? Do you believe in him? Will you worship him? I hope you will. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how you show us who you really are. That day on the mountain, you showed Moses your glory, and you've recorded it for us on the pages of your word. You've allowed us to catch a glimpse of your glory. We may not see exactly what Moses saw, but this day we hear the same words that Moses heard, that you are the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious who forgives sinners, but who never compromises his justice. Lord, may we hear your voice today in these words, and may we see these truths incarnate, in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, strengthen our gratitude for Jesus, our faith in him, our dependence on him, as we recognize all that he has done for us in revealing your glory to us, reconciling us to you, and acting as our mediator. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you, and we give you all the glory. May your name be known. May your work be trusted. May your glory be treasured above all. Amen.